Thanks, Jamie. For you who don't know me, if there's some here that don't, and perhaps there are, and you online, uh, I was a pastor for almost 30 years in New England, and now, uh, along with Karen, I'm better known as Karen's husband here, and uh, rightly so, or uh, Nathaniel's father. Um, it's a joy to be a part of the Wallace family, and what a privilege to be able to, to speak to you this morning from God's Word uh, in this time of our church's life. So, may the Lord be with us as we hear His Word this morning. I'm, I've chosen three passages to read. The, f- the first is from Luke 24. It's a follow-on from what was read earlier. And then there's a sec- selection from John chapter 20, which occurred the same day as the passage from Luke. It's that first night of the resurrection. And then we'll look at the opening verses of the book of Acts. So hear the word of God from Luke first, verses 44 of to 49 of chapter 24. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then from John's Gospel, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus again said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then the opening words of the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, thank you for these words. Come Holy Spirit, as has already been prayed and sung, for upon you we wait that you would come and make your word alive through speaker So, and to each one of us who hears, present or online, thank you for each one and for your purpose for this hour. So enable me so that the words of my mouth and all of us, the meditations of our heart, may be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. You and I live in the last interval. 
Now, if you've studied music, you know that an interval is the distance between two notes or other notes. Or all of the kids will know as well as all of us, everywhere we go, there are these round circles with a six in them and an apostrophe telling us we've got to keep our interval, except it says distance. But the interval I want to talk about today, the intervals, has to do with time. And I want to suggest to you an image. Uh, last week, Jamie, in presenting this magnificent chapter 40 of Isaiah, gave you a song and even sang some of it. I wouldn't dare go there. But I want to give you an image that will help you follow where I'm going today and that you can come with me. Think of a target and an expert archer. I loved shooting a bow and arrow as a kid. I was so glad when I could finally get to a big bow and be able to shoot uh, real arrows instead of those rubber tip things. And a good archer not only can hit the bullseye, but he can hit every single rim of the concentric circles that make up the target. And so this morning we're going to start with the outside. We're going to start with the big picture and we're going to move in until we get to a bullseye. And what I want to start with is something you can discuss at lunch, and I hope you discuss sermons at lunch, or sometimes during the day. What did you hear? What struck you? Not just, what did the bumbler try to do? I was sleeping. There are three events after the creation where everything was pronounced very good, and in the perfect environment that our first parents existed. There are three events which have the most impact of all the others in the Bible. Here they are. Number one, Adam's first sin. Number two, the incarnation of God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. Number three, the last judgment. And I suggest to you those are sort of the pillars that drive everything else in the intervals between Adam's first sin and the coming of Christ and his appearance and the last judgment. And that's our interval. We are living in this last interval until Jesus comes again. Let's consider these three events just briefly. You're familiar with them, or at least you know that the Bible teaches about them. How impactful was Adam's first sin? It was catastrophically disastrous. We may measure it in this way. It took only one act of forgetfulness, of unbelief, and of rebellion to bring about all of the things that resulted from God's curse on that sin and on the earth. Disease, disasters, hostility, fighting, wars. All these things flow from Adam's first sin. And the fact that he could only bring into the world, he and Eve, people in his image, damaged image, sinful, still in the image of God. And even a casual review of biblical and secular history confirms this. No one has to convince us of this fact. In very calm words, but very comprehensive words, Paul sums this up in Romans 5 when he says this, 
Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Spiritual, physical, eternal death, all as a result of Adam's first sin. And when people honestly face dying, the result of sin, and they're not hiding behind lies, phantoms, imagination, they're terrified. Because what happens after I die? We only die once, and we don't know, except if we believe the Word of God. Hebrews describes this as being in slavery to the fear of death, which is precisely what the Lord Jesus Christ came to deliver us from, and all of the rest of sin's fears. Well, after Adam's sin and after Adam's fall, we have a long interval, lots of intermediate intervals. We're going to speak about one of those in a moment. But then we come to this second great event, the incarnation of God the Son in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. His conception, birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension represent the fulfillment of everything since Adam's first sin that all God's faithful prophets promised and foreshadowed to achieve God's merciful plan of salvation, to reconcile us to God, to remove the fear of death. In fact, even with the resurrection of Christ, it's joy because we will be passing into the presence of God and never sin again and never see sin again. No, the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished all this by himself, by living, suffering, dying, being raised, seen, ascended, and sending out the Holy Spirit in force, in power at Pentecost. And he, as we know, who believed the gospel is the last word of God to us. We do not look for another. We don't need another. He is sufficient. Well, what remained after this second great event? The third great event, the final judgment at the return of Jesus. And his voice, just like it called Lazarus, come forth, will bring everyone who's ever died from wherever their particles are back to life. And all will stand before him. And at that moment, all intervals of time will end. No more yesterday, today, or tomorrow. Eternity begins at the last judgment when Christ returns. All uncertainty about the existence and the reality of the true God will vanish. There will be no question about who is Savior, who is Lord, who is King of Kings, the Creator, the Lawgiver, the Redeemer. It will be manifest to everyone. And every Christian believer will be instantly raised up in glory and be changed so as not to be destroyed by the joy and incredible happiness that this flesh and blood cannot sustain. Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit eternal life 
in the final form because we couldn't take it. We need a new body. We need to be reclothed to be able to endure the joy that will come and the happiness of that moment and every moment thereafter for all eternity. But for unbelievers, the lost, those without Christ in the world, there will be unspeakable horror. They will be individuals without one plea, without attorney to defend them, with no possible delays, no intervening intervals. And dear saints, this morning, this should fill us with horror, terror, grief. But it's the Word of God. And so we need to think on these events. They need to focus the way we think about our life in this interval. And drive us more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the concern that we would have or ought to have for those around us who don't know him. But let's narrow our target. This is the outer rim. Let's come into the next circle. And I want to talk about an interval that we find in the time between Adam and the Lord Jesus that's very frequent. And that's 40 days. Uh, You remember the first 40 days was the catastrophic flood Water coming up, water coming down, all kinds of tectonic activity reconstituting the earth. Forty days. Forty days Moses was on the mountain receiving the law of God. Another forty days he had to go up because he broke those tablets. Goliath taunted Israel for forty days before David arose to take him on. And just to mention one other in the Old Testament There's Jonah telling Ninevites, 40 days and you're finished. You're done. It brought repentance by God's grace to them. What a revival that was. But in the New Testament, there are only two 40-day periods. And they both have to do with our Lord Jesus Christ. The first is 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. No food, no wonderful garden, uh, no tame beasts. He was there with the wild beasts. And they're locked up with Satan. But the other 40 days is critical to the way we live our 40 days. And we read about it in, in those verses I read from, Luke, from, from Acts. Verse 3 of Acts 1 says, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now that was the first Eastertide. Did you notice that in our first hymn? This joyous Eastertide. We're in Eastertide. If you're a follower of the church calendar, and we are at least at Christmas, we say we begin with Advent, and we go through Christmas, we come to Holy Week, But from the resurrection of Jesus until Pentecost, the church has called Eastertide. But the 40 days ended with Jesus' ascension, and he was with them during this first Eastertide. And it was critical for them. And let's think about how it was critical, and for us, because of how it was critical for them. 
According to Acts here and other passages, Jesus was showing himself to all kinds of people in different ways to convince them that he was really he and he was alive who had been dead. We see that in the passages that we read today. You think Mary and Martha and Lazarus got to see him? I suspect so. How about Jairus and his wife and their little daughter? Would she want to see if she heard Jesus was alive, who brought her back from the dead? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 about various times when Jesus appeared to people. 1.500 at once. So he was proving to them and giving them undoubted, impossible to deny reality that he was alive from the dead. And that's why they could preach. And that's why 11 of those apostles gave their lives as martyrs for this testimony. John exiled for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the risen Christ. The end of the first interval, the beginning of all the rest of time. Well, what did Jesus say about the kingdom during those times? Well, we have one wonderful vignette, and I just couldn't resist reading, even though when David preached on Easter, he had this passage of the two walking to Emmaus after the end of this day, first day after the, um, uh, the first day of the week, and they're talking, and Cleopas is one of them. We don't know whether it was his wife or a companion. And they're going back and forth, talking to one another, and somebody draws near and says to them, almost casually, uh, what are these words you're throwing back and forth with each other? What's, this, what's the story here? And they stop. And the word's translated sad, but it really means sullen, gloomy. What do you mean, asking us why we're talking about these things? Don't you know what happened? And then they, of course, tell Jesus, of course, everything that happened to him, or that they could remember or say that Luke records. And he doesn't seem to be very kind to them. He says, oh, foolish, and slow to believe all that was written. How could you miss it? How could you not know that the Messiah had to suffer before he could reign? It's in your scriptures. And so he opens the scriptures to them. That's what he did during 40 days. He gave them an understanding so that they could, when they turned around to come back to Jerusalem, they could not wait another moment to traverse the seven miles back to the brothers and sisters and tell them they said didn't our hearts burn within us when he spoke to us about the scripture saints this morning here can you read the scripture without your heart burning you shouldn't be able to it's God speaking it's the only saving word it's the only correct infallible analyzing word that tells us why things are as they are what God's purposes are as far as he's revealed them and their focus in one man the God man Jesus Christ oh if our coals are smoldering may the Holy Spirit blow on them so when we read the scriptures there's a burning 
after him. There's an astonishment. There's a gladness that takes hold of us so we can sing this joyous Easter tide, even if we're not singing that song. But Luke has a, a wonderful way of putting this in the passage that was read because he says that Jesus opened their mind to understand the Scriptures. Uh, now, most translations make that plural, minds, and that's realizing that all of those he was speaking to had a, each had a mind. But the, the original is singular. It's like Paul saying, let this mind be in you which is in Christ. He wanted them to think one way about him and to learn what that thinking about him would imply as they went out to minister. So by opening their mind, he enabled them to begin to understand what was written in the Old Testament, just like he had done with those two on the road to Emmaus. And then he opened their mind to understand what he had taught them for three years that they didn't get. So that they were now able to say, oh, so that's what he meant. I've said this before, maybe some of you have heard me say it, I'm sure my family has. When I get to heaven, by God's grace, I want to see a rerun of all the thoughts in the mind of the Apostle Paul, which he wasn't then, he was simply Saul of Tarsus who was blind, was praying in Damascus after seeing the risen Christ, whom he hated and thought an imposter. And in those three days, I'm sure, he was going through the massive amount of Scripture that he knew from memory and saying, so that's what that meant. How could I miss it? How could I not get it? Now, in John's version of that same day, we get more light on why they could have their mind open. But Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit. That's a striking verb there because it's the same verb that's used in Genesis 2, verse 7, when it says, after God had formed Adam from man from the dust of the earth, he breathed into him the breath of life. And so I've always viewed this, again, something you can debate at lunch, as the Lord Jesus giving them a down payment of what they would get at Pentecost. As, as the complement of his opening the mind, it's done by the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit always go together. And so, imbued with the Holy Spirit, they could then persevere, even though in fear, locked up in an upper room, until the wind of the Spirit came at Pentecost. And what happened then? What was the difference? What was the difference between being locked up in an upper room and going into the temple and boldly proclaiming at the expense of being arrested and beaten that Jesus is the Messiah? This crucified man is the Messiah. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. Him we preach. And him only is salvation. That's what the Spirit did. So, what a magnificent preparation they received from our Lord Jesus in those 40 days to get them ready for the next step in their lives. But how did they then view their task? And how did they view the subsequent remainder of the time between Jesus coming the first time in his return and judging the nations and everyone? 
Well, the New Testament tells us. Um, five of the New Testament writers call this time the last days. Uh, Peter, even in his sermon, uh, instead of saying after these things, he says, and in the last days it shall be, as he quotes Joel. So Peter, as far as he's concerned, with the coming of Jesus, we're in the last days. It's not just because, as has been thought and can be argued, that the disciples thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. I don't really think so. I think a more careful reading will suggest they knew other things were to happen first. But they saw this as the last days. And it didn't matter how long they would be. Uh, Hebrews 1 says, In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. 2 Peter 3 says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own lusts. They also call it the end of the ages. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, he's talking about things that happened to those in the Old Testament, and they happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, we're always thinking about tomorrow, and we're hoping that this plague goes away, and we're hoping we can go back to whatever we thought was normal before. And whether that happens or not, we're in the last days, however long they are. As it is, says Hebrews 9, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by a sacrifice of himself. In fact, the time is so short that John calls it the last hour when he says, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, those who oppose Jesus as God in the flesh, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. You see, their perspective was this, dear saints. It doesn't make any difference how long this interval lasts. Compared to eternity, it's not a nanosecond. It's like nothing. It's like those images that we, we heard when Jamie read the passage and preached it last week about God weighing the nations on the scales. They're not even dust. Time is nothing compared to eternity. Except it's vital for what we do with it. It determines the nature of our eternity. Well, all of these perspectives that the New Testament has on this last interval teach us that it is brief. But I want to very briefly narrow our target down as we get closer to the bullseye. And it's already been mentioned this morning, but it's an interval of five days. And it runs from now until Friday when your pastor search committee's candidate, Ryan Moore and his wife Ada and their four girls arrive. And I won't repeat what's already been said and encourage you to be engaged with, but this is your opportunity, Wallace members. It's your opportunity to prepare yourselves for a new pastor, whether it's Ryan Moore or not. And though a member of the pastor search committee and have as my first request for you that you give thanks that the Lord gave us 14 very different people unanimity on a candidate. We spent 22 months almost in this process. And it was a wonderful 22 months, at least from my perspective. I know some of the mothers here uh, 
there's a lot of strain on those mothers to do all the things they did and others. And Jan, if you're watching, congratulations again for leading us so well. But we are wanting you to give thanks to God for bringing us to this point. Uh, I am encouraging you to pray for this time. Don't stop praying just because we have a candidate. We need to have as much as possible unanimity as we approach hearing from him, meeting him. This morning only six slots of the opportunities to meet him had been taken, I noticed, on the sign-up genius. Please take advantage of those. I add my word of exhortation. But pray for Ryan and his family as they come. This is new for them. Um, they're, they're coming up here to this staid Wallace Church. It's been around a long time. As a lot of you may know, the church he's coming from was started by Mike Sherritt. But Wallace has been around for over 100 years. Pray for them, for strength for them, and for wisdom in responding, and all the things that are involved. And then just pray for God's will for all of us. Uh, the, the Moors want God's will for them, and we certainly want God's will for Wallace. So, prepare yourselves, too, so that we can approach this with a clean conscience. Clean conscience before God and with one another. But the bullseye of the target that I want to focus on is you. Individual you. Your interval in the last interval. Which is, of course, the remaining life that you have, however old or young you are. It's very short in terms of eternity. And so, therefore, we need to think about it. I wanted Psalm 1 read because Psalm 1 shows us that there are only two people in the world. There's the meditator on the Word of God, the righteous, the blessed, the happy, and there's everybody else. Those that know the Lord, those that don't. The lost and the found, the saved, and those that need to be saved. And so, again, I want to stress this morning to any of you watching or here that have not yet surrendered to the Lord Jesus, that are holding out because of whatever reason you may think, I don't want to give my life up. I don't want to give in to someone else. I don't want someone else running my life. That sounds not like what I prefer. Oh, please reconsider. Because we're going to face death and we don't want to face it alone. We don't want to face it unprotected. And so today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And to ask the Lord to give you a heart to believe him. I mean, you can't make yourself believe. You can't, and of course, none of us can make another person believe. But you can ask the Lord, give me faith. Reveal yourself to me if you're really there. I remember as a kid hearing from the missionaries that would particularly try to reach out into Muslim lands, which were as closed then as they are now for those who don't want to suffer. No mission field is closed to people who are willing to suffer. And they would say how they could tell people, if you can't believe in Isa, which is Jesus in Arabic, 
you can't believe in him yet, you could ask God to show you if he's really the Messiah. And so that's what an unbeliever can do. You can seek the Lord. You can realize that you have a need. You are going to die, and you don't want to die alone. You want to be able to face that unafraid. But to the believers this morning, to you who know the Lord, dear saints, in the light of such an eternity, such that eternity is, is there anything more important and more vital than that we have compassion and the desire that every lost person we know, family, neighbors, co-workers, enemies, that they know the Lord, that they be changed, that they know the joy of Eastertide, that they know that no matter what they will suffer in this life, illness, difficult relationships, rebellious kids, being fired, poor, sick, they know what's coming. And not only that, they have the Lord Jesus with them to carry them and present them before the Father with unspeakable joy. So, this morning I want to I close by recommending something that really ties in with our saying goodbye to Allison today. I've had the privilege of getting to know Allison principally at the monthly prayer gathering when we used to have it upstairs. Now it's online. I invite you to come. But especially as a member of the missions committee, her tireless, faithful efforts to present to us the missionaries so we could pray for them. And I want to issue a call to you young people first in your little interval of life. What do you want to do with it? What's it for? Is it just to achieve something of the American dream or influenced by the world that's telling you this is what's great, this is what's cool? Or might the Lord put on your heart a burning to take the gospel to people who haven't heard? Or to be involved in training yourself to be able to translate the Bible into languages that don't have a bit of Scripture. They don't have what we have in the multitude of versions that are available to us. These are great needs. And parents, what are you raising your kids for? You say, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. It changes every day. What they like. <laughs> or maybe it's very clear that they have strengths and so on and you work with them. Are you reading to them or encouraging them to read when they can Christian biography about men and women who've left home and gone to places like Amy Carmichael to India and Alice Allward to Gladys Allward to, to China and so many others to take the gospel? This is a tremendous opportunity for you. Don't lose it. Let that be part of your prayers for your kids. You don't know what they should do. I know in the case of our kids, all I, want, all I prayed for is, Lord, make them servants of yours, that they would love you and whatever they're doing. And it doesn't matter what our lawful vocations are, how we earn a living as long as it is lawful, but we're lights, and we want to be lights. I'm not saying everybody should be a missionary by any means, but even to you who are older, 
we have Bob and Sharon over here, who Bob was in the Navy, he visited Japan, he got an interest in Japan, and look what the Lord did. Gave them this opportunity to be missionaries in Japan and to serve and still serving. And I little did I know when I took Spanish in junior high that I might be now preaching to brothers and sisters in Colombia. Can't go down there and it's very painful to me not to be able to. But constantly in contact with them and in wanting to encourage them. We're never at an age where we should rule this out of being able to be useful here or somewhere else. I think of the Buntons that the missions committee is now supporting. The connection with Wallace was a gal named Anne uh, Brady, I think was her maiden name. And she was in this church and she got married and they settled and they have four kids and they were living comfortably and in a church. And the Lord called them to the mission field and now they're in Papua New Guinea serving over there. No, if we can't go, we can all pray. And pray in a way for those that are lost around us, not only family, because I know some of you have unbelieving children, you may have unbelieving parents. This is extremely painful. Keep praying. Don't let up. Remember Monica who prayed for Augustine. The Lord brought him to, to, to himself. You can pray and you can Ask the Lord to open the door for people that you work with or your neighbors in whatever way. I can tell you this, Ryan Moore, who served eight years or seven or eight years as an RUF pastor at University of Alabama, has a heart for the lost and he has a heart for hospitality. And that's one of the hardest things right now for you who love to do hospitality, that we can't do it like we did before. But let's pray and hope that whatever means and whatever availability we have of this, we can use to advance the glorious kingdom of God as commissioned during the 40 days of Eastertide to the first disciples who scattered when the Spirit came on them to bring the hope of the world, the hope of God and his gospel to the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the example that you were in leaving the glories of heaven, coming here, taking on our flesh, our nature. It's incomprehensible how that can be, but so it is told us in your word, and we believe it by your grace. And we thank you that you commissioned others to go. And it wasn't just those 12 apostles, those that preached officially as we read them about them in Acts, but it was individuals who scattered and went, and wherever they went, they spoke of the resurrected Jesus. They spoke of the hope that he was over death, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with the true God, and life everlasting. So, Lord, take these words, remove the stubble from them, and may the solid grain sink down and bear fruit in our lives, now and forevermore, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of response...